starting point tonight will be Mark 14.36. Mark 14.36, the starting point tonight, but the message that I have tonight will be more of a topical nature, building on last week's message, and the theme being submitting to God's will. Submitting to God's will. And God willing, we will look at this in two parts, and so we'll come back Uh, The plan is next Lord's Day for part two of this. So submitting to God's will. And I want us to read again the account in Mark 14, 32 to 36, this solemn account of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his betrayal and arrest. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And let's again seek the Lord's help and his blessing as we hear his word. Our God, we do ask that you would speak to us tonight. We thank you that you have spoken in your word and you've given it to us, and it's so full and so rich and life-giving. And we ask tonight as we open it that you would give us help by your spirit, that we might understand what we hear, that we might receive it by faith, that our faith might be strengthened, that some would even come to the Savior tonight, that we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. We have a saying that we often use, and we use it when we're talking about something that is a good idea, at least in theory, but is quite difficult to execute, to carry out. And that saying is easier said than done. So you think of all sorts of plans maybe you have even this year. You say, well, I would like to get in shape this year or in better shape this year. It's easier said than done. You say, I'd like to clean out my garage, get my life organized. I'd like to maybe work on a certain relationship, a fractured relationship, or maybe an old friendship that has slipped over time. You'd like to start saving a little bit more money, perhaps even investing some of that money. You'd like to learn a new skill, spend more time in prayer, spend more time studying the word of God. All of these things are easier said than done. And really just about everything in life is. About everything in life is easier said than done. And what I want to talk about tonight, submitting to the will of God in all things. This especially falls into that category of easier said than done. And that's especially when in God's providential will, 
trials and seasons of adversity come upon us, which many of you all are knowing and experiencing right now. It's been almost 10 years ago that I taught a Sunday school lesson here. It was my first that I taught from this pulpit. I think it was painted differently. It wasn't painted. It was stained at that time. And in that Sunday school lesson, I surveyed James' exhortations on trials. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, says James. Well, afterwards, a godly older woman approached me and she said to me, with tears in her eyes, she said, it's one thing to say that and another to live it. And I've certainly found that to be true in my own life. I know that you all have also found that to be true in your own life. Being joyful in the midst of trials, submitting to the will of God in all things, whatever comes your way, to say the least, is no easy thing. As we walk in this life, rightly called a valley of tears, it's no easy thing. But I've also found it to be true that as we face trials, God gives us the grace that we need when we need it. And he supports us and he helps us. We find grace to help in our time of need. Well, last Lord's Day, we took a closer look at Jesus' prayer in the garden there in Mark 14 and in verse 36, as he's praying, not what I will, but what you will, we asked two basic questions, and the first was, what did this mean for Jesus, the Son of God, to live with this governing desire over all of his life? And we saw that the answer, or what we considered as the answer, was, in a word, obedience. It meant for him obedience to the point of death and even the death of the cross for us. And then we ask, well, what does it mean for us as we seek to follow our Lord? For us, as those who are naturally rebellious, to say from the heart, your will be done, O God, not my will. What does it mean for us? And we saw that it means in the first place, a new heart, which brings about new desires and therefore a new war and a new conflict in our life. But then as we looked more practically, we considered that it means a life of knowing the will of God, of doing the will of God, and of submitting to the will of God in all things. And we looked briefly at those first two last time, knowing God's will and doing it. And so we come now to think about submitting to the will of God in all things. Now, submitting to God's will basically involves two things. There is an active obedience, that's the doing of God's will, and in particular, his revealed will, what we have here in the word of God. That's what we focused on last time. But here what we're talking about tonight is a passive obedience, we could call it, a submitting patiently to the outworking of God's concealed will, or his will of decree, we could say, as he's outworking that, working it out in our lives, it's submitting to it, it's passive obedience. That's our focus tonight. And what I want to do is look at two roots, two roots of this submitting to the will of God. And then we will look next time at some of the fruits of submission to the will of God, what it looks like when we are submitting to the will of God. But tonight, just two roots 
of submitting to the will of God. And I want to note before we begin that what we're not talking about is a sort of stoical, cold, and indifferent response to the trials of life, just accepting the inevitable and saying, well, it couldn't be different anyways, and so we just accept it. That's not what I'm talking about, because that's something that even unbelievers can do and often do do. And it can look sometimes like genuine submission. But what I'm talking about is something that doesn't grow in the natural soil of our hearts and requires a work of God's power and grace to really submit patiently and humbly to the will of God so that we say, so that we're enabled to say from the heart, whatever my God ordains is right. So that's what I'm talking about. And I want now to look at some roots, two of them, roots of submission to God's will. So before we look at the tree, if you want to think it that way, you can picture this tree And before we look at some of the many fruits, we'll look at maybe three or four fruits of submission to God's will. We're going to dig below the surface a bit and consider two roots of this submission, and they're interconnected. The first one is the fear of God, the fear of God. So we say that submission to God's will grows from and is nourished by a godly fear. This was even true of the Lord Jesus. His prayer in the garden there, verse 36, he's crying out, he's sweating, he's in earnest and praying, not my will, but yours be done. That was an expression of his godly fear, says the writer in Hebrews chapter 5. There in Hebrews 5, 7, we're told that, and it's also translated there in different translations, reverence or reverent submission. And let me remind you of those words that Pastor Jim looked at with us some time ago. And this is speaking of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, in particular, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, because of his reverence, because of his reverent submission, he was heard. Now also we're told that Noah submitted to the will of God. He submitted to God's will when God said, Noah, build the ark. He obeyed, and we read also in Hebrews 11 that he did this being moved with godly fear. Same word. Moved with godly fear, Noah also submitted to the will of God. And then we read in Hebrews 12, 28, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. But as we look at our Lord in the garden, he is saying this prayer out of godly fear. Now in our fallen world, men and women and even children have been often unwilling servants, forced into subjection to cruel tyrants out of fear. But that's not what I mean, that's not what the Bible means by submitting to God in the fear of God. For one, we're talking about a willing submission here, a willing submission and not a forced subjection. 
A willing submission not to a cruel tyrant, but to the king of love, a good and a gracious God, and even our father in heaven. So whatever notions we might get in our head of fear from the world, we need to come to the word of God and say, what does God mean when he speaks of the fear of God? So this is the fear of God that produces the fruit of a willing submission to God and not a slavish fear, not a fear of pure dread, but it's a godly fear, an adoring reverence, we could say, an affectionate honor of God, an admiring awe of the true and the living God. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of this fear. It's a fear that's been rightly called the soul of godliness. The soul of godliness, or we could say of true religion, so that if you don't have this fear, there's no true godliness, no true religion. Just like a body without a soul is dead. It's a corpse. It's the soul of godliness. It's this fear that is really a dominant theme in the Bible, the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament. It's this fear, this godly fear, that is the beginning of knowledge and is the first principle of wisdom as we read in the book of Proverbs. It's this fear that together with keeping God's commandments is said at the end of Ecclesiastes to be man's all. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's this godly fear which was found in Job. Job, who was so highly commended by God. You remember what God said of Job. He's speaking to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Remarkable that God would say, there's none like my servant Job on earth. And one of the things that God points out is his fear, his godly fear. Now, Job is a prime example of the point I'm trying to make. And he's not without some fault in his response to really an unimaginable series of of events, a, a deep affliction that comes upon him, just overwhelms him. But he does give us a picture of one who in the fear of God submitted to the will of God and in many ways was commendable for his response and contrary to his wife's response. And she gives us a picture of what I'm not talking about. So she responds after all of these things come upon Job. This is in Job 2. She says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That is not a response of submitting to the will of God and the fear of God, but quite the opposite. Now Job says, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? That is a response of submitting to the will of God in the fear of God. He's essentially saying, shall we only submit to God's will when it is agreeable to us? Now you know that the fear of God is a massive subject and I'm just giving you a little bit of some of the low-hanging fruit here. God willing, we will come back to this subject as we continue our Christian ethics series. We'll be considering the fear of God, the soul of godliness. 
So I, I won't go into much detail more tonight, but I want us to understand this as one of the roots of a submission to God is a fear of God. This is a grace, a divine gift in the hearts of believers. God puts it there. He puts his fear in our hearts. In fact, this is one of the promises of the new covenant, that God would put his fear in his people's hearts. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 40, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. He's saying, I will do this. I'm going to give them this heart. It's a work of God. And he says that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. I will put my fear in their hearts. So we do need to understand that this root of submission is a gift of God's grace. He puts it into our renewed hearts. So we ask the question as we think a little bit about application, what then are we to do? If you were here for the Sunday school, this is somewhat related. What are we to do if the fear of God is a gift of God's grace, if it's implanted in our hearts by God himself, if it's the result of his work in us, then what is left for us to do? And the biblical answer is that we are to strive, to strive by God's grace to maintain the fear of God that he has implanted in our hearts. And not just to maintain it, but we are to strive by God's grace to increase the fear of God in our lives. This is true of every grace that God imparts and works in us. So the grace of faith that we considered this morning. You see this in several places. In 2 Peter, for example, where he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. And he goes on. And the question we ask are, are these graces that he's talking about, are these graces here that we are to grow in, are they the result of the grace of God or of diligence? And the answer is clearly both. So at the end of 2 Peter, when he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is saying, you be diligent and not slack to grow in the grace of God. And of course, we would think of Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you. So as we think about the fear of God, we are to labor, we are to strive to maintain this fear that God has put in our hearts and even to increase it. And if you ask, how do we do that? It's really simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And that is simply a regular Diligent use of all of the means of grace, the public and the private means of grace, especially the word, whether it's preached or whether you're reading it, studying it, prayer, the ordinances of the new covenant, baptism, the Lord's Supper. These are the primary means of grace that God uses. 
by which the people of God receive the grace of God and grow in conformity to Christ. So here again, it's easier said than done. But the way forward is given to us. If you would grow in the fear of God, then give yourself diligently to the means of grace. So as you study the word of God and as you come to know God better and who he is, you will increase in the fear of God. And I would say to those of you here, if you've never bowed the knee to Christ, if you've never submitted to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in faith, in loving submission, the thing that you need to do without any delay is to cry out to God for a new heart, to ask him to put his fear in your heart. If you say, I have no fear of God, Ask God and say, put your fear in my heart that I might not only understand these things, but that there might be an urgency in my soul to respond to the appeals of the gospel, to come to Christ so that you might have life in him. So that is what I would say to those of you who again sit here and hear this message. Don't tune it out. Pray that God would put his fear in your heart that you might repent, that means turn from your sins, and turn to Christ in faith, clinging to him, trusting in him alone, and then go on walking humbly with God all the days of your life, submitting to his will in all things. So that's the first root that I want to consider. It is the fear of God. So we submit to the will of God in the fear of God. But I want to consider secondly, and this is the only other root we will consider, The second root is faith, faith in God. Now, of course, of primary concern is faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving and resting upon him alone for your salvation. Can there be any submission to the will of God if we reject God's Messiah? No. But what I want us to think about is Faith in God in a broader sense being a root of submission to God. That faith by which a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, as our confession states. The believer who patiently submits to the will of God, especially in the midst of trials and tribulations, does so in faith. And this is one of the key points that I want to make. This is not faith in some vague, undefined sense. Faith is some unspecified thing. We've got this faith, and it's in faith that we submit to the will of God. It's not that. It's faith in God that embraces as true certain facts, and truths revealed in the word of God. Definite truths revealed by God himself in the scriptures. So that it's not a blind faith. It's not an uninformed faith that produces in us a submissive heart. But it's a knowledgeable faith. A faith that is informed by the Bible. Revealed truth. This is very practical. Because if I say to you, you you need to exercise your faith 
if you were to submit in the will of God. But if it's just left vague and nebulous, you say, well, what do I do? So we need to understand its connection with what has been revealed in the word of God. Saving faith can't be separated from knowledge. Knowledge of the truth is absolutely necessary, but not knowledge alone. Knowledge alone isn't faith. You could know all about the Bible, and you could not have faith. I want to give you a key text, and this is Psalm 910. Those who know your name, that is the Lord's name, Yahweh's name, those who know your name will put their trust in you. You see the connection between this knowledge and trust? Those who know your name will put their trust in you. In other words, those who know, and it's not just a bare intellectual knowledge here, but those who know what God has revealed about himself, that's what is meant by his name. Those who know what God has revealed about himself will put their trust in him. Their faith will be built on the revealed character of of God. Oftentimes, let's just say there's somebody that you find out more about them. You have more revelation about this person. And it's often the case that that might lead us to trust them less. With God, the more that we truly know him as he's revealed himself in the word of God, it will lead us to trust him more. They will know David says, by divine revelation and by the Spirit's works in their, work in their heart, they will know who God is, they will know what he is like, and this will inspire confidence in them. That's what he's saying. And it's this confidence or trust in God that will certainly lead to a humble and patient submission to the will of God. So there's a connection, faith and knowledge, revealed knowledge. So we shouldn't think that theology and serious study of the word of God is of no practical relevance. I don't think you guys do, but there is that tendency to think that theology really is just theoretical and it's not practical. But actually, often what we need in times of trials is some word about who God is, some reminder about God's ways, God's promises. We need, as it were, a theology lesson at times, and we find that that's just what we needed. That's just what our weary soul needed to latch onto that we might persevere another day. The more we know of God, says one man, J. Gresham Macon, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. Now back to the main point. Faith in God is a vital root of submission to God. And this faith is not a vague thing, but it's a definite thing. It's informed by the word of God. So what I want to do in the time remaining the brief time remaining here is just review a few truths from the word of God that are especially calculated to strengthen our faith when it's hard to submit to the will of God. Truths that by faith we ought to receive. 
Now, you will easily be able to add to this little collection that I have, and I would encourage you to do that, to possibly even write it down, to write down truths in the word of God for you to hold fast and to take to heart that will help you in times of adversity, even if you're not facing adversity right now. Things can change at any time. There's the truth of God's absolute sovereignty. And that means that God is reigning over all things that he has created. And it's all over the scriptures. He is absolutely sovereign, reigning over everything. And we know that he's doing all his holy will. From Psalm 115.3, we learn, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Think about it. That can't be said of anybody else. He does whatever he pleases. That can't be said of the devil. He doesn't do whatever he pleases. That can't be said of the mightiest powers on earth that they do whatever they please. It cannot be said of the enemies of the church, however great our enemies are, only God can it be said that he does whatever he pleases. It's the sovereign will of the sovereign God that will prevail. So that even the evil intentions of men, God overrules for his good purposes. And what's the prime supreme example? It's the cross. That men had wicked plans. He was taken, Christ was by lawless hands, and yet it was for the greatest good that men and women, sinners, would be saved by God's grace. Now closely related is the truth of God's providence. This is his sovereignty in action. This is God working out his eternal plans and purposes here and now working out all things, governing the universe he has created, upholding all things, and down to even the smallest details of our lives. The Bible teaches this very plainly. God's not a sovereign God who's ruling at a distance, but actually is intimately involved in ruling everything. In every circumstance, we can know God is providentially directing all things, that our God and not chance... Not bad luck, but God is at the helm. That whatever we might be facing, whether it's good or whether it's bad, it comes to us from God's hand. Now, if we believe that, still, that truth might be troubling, that whatever comes to us comes from God's hand, unless we have other truths which we do find in the word of God. So God's goodness, God's perfect wisdom, God's love for us, his own special people, God's purposes for us, all for our good in the end. So yes, God is great and he rules over all, but the Bible also says that he's infinitely good. We read the Lord is gracious and full of compassion slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, eight and nine. If, if he is good to all, how much more can that be said of us, his people? He's good to us. So he's not just 
great, but he's good. But suppose that this God who's infinitely great and infinitely good, suppose that somehow he lacked wisdom so that really, after all, we couldn't trust him completely. Well, the Bible says he's also infinite in wisdom. I'll give you one example. Psalm 147, 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Now, our faith might still need to be strengthened. Because what if this infinitely great and good and wise God doesn't care for me? What if he has evil purposes in mind for me? What if he intends to withhold good things from me? Well, as we read the word of God, our faith is strengthened because we read that if we belong to Christ, if we're in Christ, if we're united to him by faith, then we know that we are children of God. We know that we're loved with a boundless love and an eternal love. And we know, as Paul says in Romans 8, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. We also know, looking at Psalm 84, that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So you hold that by faith. Or Psalm 34, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. That doesn't mean you won't have trials, but no truly good thing that the Lord in his infinite wisdom and goodness knows that you need, you won't lack it. You read further in the word of God that the Lord is a shepherd and that he's your shepherd and that you're under his care and that being under his care, you shall not lack anything. Psalm 23. And also wherever he leads you, even if that's through the valley of the shadow of death, you read that he'll be with you to comfort, to strengthen, to guide, to uphold. Again, as you study the scriptures, you find that God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. That even when his people are unfaithful, over and over again, he proves himself to be faithful. You read of a new and better covenant that's based on better promises, as we've been looking at in the book of Hebrews. You look at a better mediator and this covenant being sealed with his blood, the precious blood of Christ. And it's this covenant wherein God freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. You further read and you receive by faith the promise which is at the heart of this covenant of grace. And that is, I, says God, will be your God and you will be my people. I'll be your God. You will be my people. And what a comfort to know that the one who's reigning over all and working out everything according to his eternal purpose is your God. He's your God. He's even your father in heaven. And when you think about this, you have to conclude nothing happens by chance. It all comes to you by the fatherly hand of God. And you could even say, I'm borrowing language from the Heidelberg Catechism, but you could even say that not even a hair of your head 
will fall apart from the will of your Father in heaven. If you want to be encouraged, many of you know it, look up Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. And it would be the sorts of truths that we're considering here, just beginning to consider. It's a Bible-saturated answer to the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. So when your way is hard, when your lot in life is difficult, when you're finding it hard to submit to the will of God, exercise your faith in such truths that we've just considered, but a hundred more, hundreds more in the word of God. I hope there's other truths coming to your mind. There were many that came to my mind and I didn't put them all down here. I'm trying to stir you up to think about these things and to remind us that faith lays hold of these things that are revealed to us and that's what we need to do. We need to consider these things when we find ourselves in God's providence facing adversity Take these things to heart. Think about them. Write them down. Pray these things until you find your heart strengthened. And even cry out to God. If your faith feels weak, you cry out, help my unbelief. Help me to lay hold of these truths, not just as these theoretical things, but truths which... Come to me in my time of need. When I read that God is merciful, that he's merciful to me, that I experience that in my own life and so on. Meditate upon these things. Pray to God so that your faith might be strengthened, that it might be nourished upon the word of God, built up on the solid rock of divine revelation so that you might be able to submit to God's will in all things, just as our Lord and Savior did. And surely his submission to the will of God was rooted in godly fear, and it was rooted in faith. And I believe we see evidence of both of these in his prayer. When in the garden he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, to follow Christ in this will not be easy, but his grace is sufficient, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the richness and the variety of your word. Lord, we thank you for the solemn scene in Gethsemane, and even more for the truths that we see there, and our Savior that we see there, submitting himself to your will for us. Lord, we pray that like our Savior, we would submit to your will. Enable us, by your grace, to submit to your will in all things. We thank you for putting your fear in our hearts and pray you would increase it. Unite our hearts to fear your name and increase our faith. Lord, we thank you for these truths that we have rehearsed and pray you would bring many, many more to our minds and write them upon our hearts. To those even now struggling, finding it hard to press on and to submit to your will, 
pray that some truth or truths would be brought to their mind tonight, that they would be strengthened. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.